Hi everyone and welcome to the Parma podcast. Um, I'm James Prescott, your host. Really great to be with you all again. And um, this is a special episode because I'm in Maastricht at the house of my friend, Becky Castle-Miller. Hi James. Uh, <laughs> We're very glad to have you at our home with us. Yes. We're sitting at um, Becky's dinner table tonight. Um, it's 20 to 11 in the evening, and we decided to record a podcast. <laughs> because we ran out of Doctor Who episodes <laughs> to watch. <laughs> yes. If you listen to our last episode together, you'll understand that reference. Um, yeah, and we'll probably do more episodes on Doctor Who, I suspect, at I some point. So. <laughs> yes, because I think we could probably talk about Doctor Who for infinity. Um, but today we were talking this weekend about um, what, epi- what we would do in this episode. And um, one thing kind of stuck out, and it was um, talking about mental and emotional health, which is something that I'm really passionate about and Becky's passionate about as well, Um, but in relation to Jesus and God and the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to have a a little look at at this. And Becky's got some specific stories of Jesus um, where where we see a bit more about who Jesus is and his emotional well-being and his mental health because um one of the things that and becky will allude to this as well that that, that we get in this in the from conservative churches conservative theology is that jesus if jesus was without sin as in if he did nothing wrong if he didn't if he was perfect then he would not have mental illness or emotional health problems um and of course we're going to talk today about how that's not actually correct um and so just yeah um becky just kind of elaborate a bit on what we're gonna talk about and then we can go into it sure i think that all theology has to come from a context and go into a context and so the context in which i learned emotional ill health was a theological context growing up in a conservative church um I really picked up the message that my emotions were not trustworthy, that I couldn't trust my own heart, um, and that the symptoms of mental illness were signs of a lack of faith. So I really suppressed my emotions, and then like emotional suppression being complicated then with actual mental illness in my life um, put me in. A terrible place personally. Yeah. So the theology that I was taught was not without consequence. Like it really put me in a place of suicidal ideation, hopelessness, depression, mm. and no way out. Um, and so that bottom place, like that low place that I found myself in in 2009, is when I started re examining what I believed because of the impact it had on how I lived. Mm. Um, and I really think that's how we need to do theology, that it can't just be detached from human life and human existence and human experience. Um, so I, I rethought everything I had been taught, and I, I searched out and I started to learn about mental illness, and I started learning about emotional health. I started seeing a therapist who helped me learn to identify and express my emotions. Um, and so... In the past 10 years, I've been on this journey of understanding mental health, emotional health, and understanding theology better. Now I'm a seminary student and I'm studying our very real, very human Jesus and his emotions. Um, I'm actually hoping to write a book on that in the future. So it was my personal experience that drove me to sort of deconstruct my theology of emotion. Wow, yeah. I mean, I'm yeah, some of that resonates with me as well because I, I grew up in a... You know, that, in that church where, like, you're told, like, don't trust. Don't trust your emotions. Don't trust your intuition. Mm-hmm. Don't trust, um, like, the flesh. Right, because it, after all, brackets. your yeah. heart is deceitful above all things. Yes, Remember so that, James. Right. So it's like, so everything, like, yeah, so all your natural desires, oh, they're not, no, they're evil. Like, mm-hmm. if, you, if you desire it, then it's automatically, yes. like, evil. Then, yeah, this is why, this is, it sounds really ridiculous now. Like and that's why this whole kind of thing with this is a different subject, but with like vocation and calling and what God is calling you to do. And it, if it was something you wanted to do, then it couldn't be what God wanted mm-hmm. to do because you wanted to do it. 
So if you want to do it, then God can't want you to do it. Right, God must want you to do something that's going to make you feel miserable. Yes, exactly. It must be something you would never want to do um, in a million years. Like, because God doesn't give us desires or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) You know, it sounds... (laughs) Right, right, but I believed that for so long. Yeah, and so did I. So did I. And people still believe it now, you Mm -hmm. know, and it's... um, it it sounds really silly when you talk about it. It's like it just doesn't make any sense. It's completely yeah, it doesn't make any sense. But um, but yes, the emotional, the mental health, uh, and emotional health thing. And uh, <laughs> Becky's just taking a photo of us on her iPhone. <laughs> Podcasting <laughs> um, selfie. <laughs> podcast, yes, indeed. Um, uh, and it's not throwing me off track. But sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I love live recordings. They're so much more fun. Um, but no, but, but the, men, the, the mental health issue, uh, and emotional health, it's like, it's like, well, you, you can't, if you've got mental illness, there's something wrong with you. There's something deficient with you and God needs to fix you. You know, I saw a movie, um, recently about conversion therapy, mm. which was, oh God, I, we'll have to do a whole episode on that really. Cause I will have a private conversation about that as well, mm-hmm. cause it's an amazing movie and it's really powerful. Um, but it's kind of like that's part of the historically there's been a problem with people with mental illness and that it's been like they've got a demon or they've got a you know um, or they've got there there's something wrong with them that God doesn't love them as much that they need to mm. repent or Oof. get forgiveness or all this Ugh, kind of I have a story about that oh oh tell us I was in a small group Bible study meeting a few years ago. And felt like I had built enough trust with this group to share more of my life story, more than just chit-chat and Bible study, and mm-hmm. shared about my, uh, my struggles with um, major depressive disorder um, when, and, and postpartum depression in 2009-2010. And one of the other group members said, well, you were, you know, you were clearly being tormented by a demon. Like it was clearly a spiritual attack. Mm-hmm. And I, I was... I was strong enough in myself at this point. I was far enough beyond it, far enough healed, and and I knew enough that it didn't devastate me personally. But I was so concerned with anyone else in the room who might be dealing with that and would have just heard that said that I like very carefully and calmly responded that I absolutely disagreed with that. It was absolutely not... Uh, a demon or a demonic mm. attack. And while I do believe in s- supernatural forces, absolutely, and, and spiritual warfare, that was not the case with my depression. Um, it was it was a, a chemical deficiency in my body and problems with my limbic system and trauma responses that mm. I had never dealt with. And it exactly. was a physiological yeah. and emotional thing. And, um, and with mm. medication and therapy, I got better. And it wasn't a negative in my life, the time when I had that emotional breakdown and really dealt with my mental health was a time that I was so close to God. God was Mm. so present with me in my experience of mental illness Mm. that it was in some ways not, I won't say that the the illness was a gift from God because I don't think that God wants us to be broken. I think that we're broken because we live in a broken world. But the gift from God was that God was there with me and that God was present with me. And it wasn't an experience that took me away from God. It was an experience that drove me closer to God and more in love with the church, more in love with the people of God. And so I just tried to very calmly answer this man in this small group meeting to say that I I don't believe that I was possessed by demons in the time, that it, it mm. truly was a, a medical and physiological issue. And, mm. and I was so thankful for the healing I found through doctors and um, thankful for God's presence with me through the trial. So, But it's very real that people do believe that um, all mental illness is spiritual warfare. And so people don't seek the actual medical help that's available for them. And so they suffer yes. needlessly. Yes. And we have that in physical health as well, don't we? we some, some people... Don't go, don't go to the doctor because they think, well, God's going to heal me. Right. You know, which is just, you know, so da- dangerous. Like, it's dangerous. Um, um, I mean, like, I, I mean I, I'm epileptic. And like, a hundred years ago, I would have been put in a mental asylum mm-hmm. because they thought it was a, they thought you were insane mm-hmm. or that you were possessed or cursed or whatever if you had epilepsy. Because I didn't understand the science of it, which is just that your brain has more electricity than 
other people's and sometimes you have a seizure because your body kind of gets rid of it you know that's basically what it is <laughs> very very small nutshell you know but um yeah just ignoring basics like it's not basic science but you know what we now understand through scientific research about mental health and just kind of going back to archaic ideas it's, it, it's not helpful at all and we have to remember when, we, when the bible was written they didn't understand any of mm-hmm. a lot of these things so they attributed it to what they did understand which right. was like god so when people like with, with, i think there's stories of jesus healing people with possessed by devils right which now we would say well that was a seizure disorder it was a seizure. it's like a either epilepsy or something else right. that's probably what it was you know it wasn't like a, <clears throat> it wasn't a demon um but that's that's how the only language they had to describe it. Right. So that's what they would have said. Um, like people used to say that because they were ill because it was the curse of God. Right. Like but the the guy who gets healed, um, Jesus heals him. He tells him to get up and walk. I think he says like, oh, it's a curse from God. But nowadays we wouldn't say that. We'd just say he's got a, an illness which mm-hmm. stops him from walking. Right. Whatever. Um, and the, you know, the interesting thing about those gospel accounts, and this is something I've wondered about, and actually I'd love to look more at the scholarship on this because I haven't deep-dived into it, but I've wondered about those times when Jesus healed people, delivered them from what in the gospels is described as demonic attacks. And it's clearly things like a seizure disorder, like the boy who keeps throwing himself into fires and things, mm. which now we would diagnose as yeah, some kind of, of medical issue. Um, but regardless of how the people of the time interpreted what was causing it or what was going on, in one sense, it doesn't matter because the truth is that Jesus stepped in, had compassion and healed him. Mm. Right. And I think that that's still what God wants us to do today, whether we're diagnosed properly or diagnosed improperly, whether we understand what's going wrong with us or not, Jesus is still the same and Jesus still wants to bring healing to us. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, and that's. I think that leads kind of nicely into talking about Jesus' own emotional mm-hmm. well-being and his own emotional mental health, um, because obviously he faced a lot of traumas in his life, particularly at the end, but also when he was younger. I mean, you know, um, losing a, losing a parent, mm-hmm. um, and you know the stigma that he would have had as an illegitimate child. Right. Um, from even within his own family, you know, right from the beginning, he would have had all of this growing up, even from very young. So you know, he went through a lot of, a lot of kind of persecution and a lot of trauma, even before he started ministry. Right. Um, so it's really interesting to examine it. So you've got a few stories that you I think from the Gospels that you yeah. want to look at in particular. Absolutely. So let's just get into that and. Great. And uh, have a look. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Jesus' life circumstances are the place to start. Um, Jesus, fully incarnate God, fully human, fully God, in his human body, in his human existence, with his mind limited, because he set aside his godness in order to fully enter into the human experience. Um, and that's maybe the place to start, is to recognize that Jesus is fully human. Um, when he chose to be incarnated, he set aside his godness. He, he, he set aside his omnipotence and his omnipotent powers and existed fully within the realm of human experience for that time, which meant that everything he experienced, he experienced as human, and every miracle he did, he did by the power of the Holy Spirit in the same way that we as humans now can do good works and do miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't do it in a human body, sort of masquerading, putting on the Superman suit of, oh, hey, I'm pretending to be human. He really was human. It wasn't just like, hey, I'm God. I sort of look human, but zap, pow, you're healed. You know, mm-hmm. It wasn't like a comic book God. Like He truly was human and what he did he did by the power of the holy spirit so when he said greater works you'll do than i've done he really meant it literally he really meant you'll do greater things by the power of the holy spirit in the same way i'm doing it so all of his life experiences that were hard and painful he survived them 
in the same strengthening of the Holy Spirit that we have access to as followers of Jesus now. So yeah, his birth into a poor working class family from the teeny tiny little village of Nazareth, mm. growing up possibly poor. I and mean, possibly there was some of the treasures from the Magi, but it seems like he grew up pretty poor. His parents couldn't afford a full offering. They, they gave the, the poor person's offering, not the rich person's offering when they presented him at the temple. So he probably grew up poor. His father seems to have still been alive. His earthly father, Joseph, seems to have been still alive when he was 12. But then by the time he's 33 and hanging on the cross, his father has passed away. So at some point in his young adulthood or teenage years, he lost his earthly father and was then essentially orphaned. And so he survived the loss of a parent, the trauma of of that uh, probably reduced circumstances, further reduced circumstances Mm. for his family. How did he and his brothers then provide for his mom? I mean, it seems like there was probably a lot of struggle there. They worked with their hands. They were day laborers. because he was considered a bastard child, because his fatherhood was in question. Um, He was called Mary's son, not Joseph's son, because everyone knew he wasn't really Joseph's son. So Mm. he had that stigma against him his whole life, and his mom bore the stigma of getting pregnant out of wedlock her whole life probably as well. Um, And so he had no marriage prospects. And so I don't know what his young adult life was like. We're not told in the four Gospels that we have in the Christian scriptures today, but likelihood that if he had any, you know, romantic aspirations as any, you know, young man would have, um, he had no chances of marriage because no one would want their good Jewish daughter marrying the illegitimate, you know, bastard child. And so I imagine there was probably heartbreak in there for him as well. Um, and seeing mm. sort of this life of singleness stretching out ahead of him. And then somewhere along the way, becoming aware of his identity, his calling, his ministry, and who he truly was and the cost that it was going to bear for him. Um, and then, of course, you know, traveling and teaching this hard life and teaching his disciples who didn't understand and must have just driven him crazy some days with their lack of understanding, no matter how many times he explained things. Um, and his very real losses along the way and his, his rejection uh, from so many areas, culminating then in his suffering and death. So Jesus the man lived a hard, physically difficult life and an emotionally difficult life. And it seems that he suffered a lot. And so when Hebrews talks about our great high priest who can identify with us, who's been tempted in all the ways we have. I think the Bible really means that. Hmm. I think the Bible really means that Jesus can identify with all our sufferings. Because the Jesus that you just described is very different from the one I was brought up to believe in. You know, it's, it's like Jesus saves the day. Jesus is like, it's like Superman, except he's real. You know, um, he just say he solves every problem. He knows everything. He's perfect. He loves everyone. Um, he doesn't have any problems, you know, and none of that's true. And when you when you were telling that story, I just felt so much empathy and sympathy, you know, especially the loss of a parent. I think having lost a parent myself mm-hmm. in my early twenties, which is probably when yeah. the same age that he lost his his father, it's that particularly. I think I felt like a bit of a because that's a huge thing to to happen to lose a parent at any time but yet alone when you're young and when financially things are very difficult without him it's um although i suspect that he had brother he had brothers so they mm-hmm. probably would have carried on the family business and taken care of the, his mother but still you know um it just makes suddenly jesus becomes very human mm-hmm. and then very lonely you yeah. know like even when he had all these disciples he was still he was the only one that really got it you know, a lot of the time. Yeah, that feeling of being misunderstood even by your close friends is so alienating. And I think Jesus lived that every day because his closest friends completely misunderstood him. Yeah, this is why I think about John and he's called the disciple Jesus loved. Mm. Maybe maybe one of the reasons he was close to him was because John maybe got it more than other people did. Sure. John was an academic, wasn't he? He was quite... I, I, I don't know the full history of him, but I think he was quite a smart guy 
It was just, um, and maybe he got it more than other people did, and maybe Jesus felt mm-hmm. he could talk to him about that stuff more than other people. Because yeah, Peter certainly yeah. didn't get it. Peter Stop. didn't get it. <laughs> um, yeah, well, we know what happened with Peter. <laughs> <laughs> well, John was probably the youngest disciple, quite a young teen when he started following Jesus, um, and he certainly lived the longest of all of the disciples, um, partly because he wasn't martyred. Um, he did live a full natural life. Um, but obviously Jesus trusted John. And if you read John's gospel and then if you read John's letters for second and third John, you hear so many echoes of the teachings of Jesus in them. He clearly internalized Jesus's words and then repeated them to people. Um, and so Jesus trusted John, obviously, because when he was on the cross, he said to John, take care of my mother. Hmm. He trusted his mom to John and John did it faithfully. Church tradition tells us that John and Mary eventually moved to Ephesus and that John cared for Mary the rest of her life and then did his ministry out of Ephesus. It's a really actually a very beautiful story. Yeah. I, yeah, I think I knew bits of that. Um, I know that he did care for her. I knew that I knew that he'd cared for her his whole life after that, but I didn't know about the Ephesus thing. That is a really beautiful story actually. Um, but yeah, he must have trusted him. Yeah, he must have found some kind of close bond with him. Right. I and mean, he was the only disciple who showed up. The only one of the twelve that showed up at the cross when he was right. dying. None of the others were there. Right, it was the women. It was the women and, and John. his mother and John. Yeah. That's it. Nobody else kind of turned up right. for him. They all ran away. Right. So perhaps he did find that one loyal yeah. friend, but I think for a lot of the others, um, yeah, just suffering that misunderstanding of even your closest associates. Mm. It's very lonely. Yeah. Yeah, that's quite sad, really. And you think, which takes... I mean, what what what, what are the stories that... I mean, like one or two yeah. of the stories that you wanted to explore? We've got, now we've got that context. Yeah. Um, you know, first we see in the Old Testament, we see God, the triune God, as the Old, Test, as the Old Testament people of God understood God. Um, we see God as being depicted with strong emotions. I mean, even in the Old Testament, God has um, anger and God has joy and God has sadness. Um, God is is grieved and God is deeply compassionate and God has loving kindness. And um, so we see that <coughs> we see that God has emotion. And so we see that we as humans, as image bearers of God, have emotions. Like emotion isn't something that's broken in us. Emotion is a deeply integral part of who we are as God's image bearers. And so, of course, Jesus, as a human, was deeply emotional because not only was Jesus in his divinity fully God, Hmm. but Jesus is in his humanity fully human. And so, as an image bearer in that sense, he has emotions. And so, um, we see Jesus' compassion. um, For example, in Matthew 20, when Jesus uh, heals the two blind men by the roadside, they call out to him, have mercy on us. And Jesus has that same loving kindness and mercy that God in the Old Testament is depicted as having. And he has mercy on them and he heals them. So Jesus feels the emotion of deep compassion, deep empathy. (coughs) And Jesus is full of joy. Uh, I love the story in Luke 10, uh, Jesus has sent out his 72 disciples. He's prepared them. He sends them out to do ministry and they come back and they report amazing things that they're done, they've, they've done in God's name. And Jesus is full of joy through the Holy Spirit. He celebrates what they've done. He praises God the Father um, that God has hidden these secrets of God's kingdom and power from the wise and the powerful and those with status. And he's revealed them to like the little children. And, and he, Jesus just delights with the joy of the success of his disciples and what God is doing in the world. And, um, I one time preached on this joy that Jesus has, Mm. and I wanted a really powerful sermon illustration. So I had this bowl full of star shaped gold confetti glitter Mm. And as I, as I talked about Jesus's joy, I picked up the bowl and I threw it in the air. And so this gold confetti rained down everywhere. And it was this beautiful picture. And it, it, was, it was memorable. It was gorgeous. But what I didn't factor in, of course, was cleaning it up afterwards. 
Mm. So I had like 10 people afterwards, like helping me pick (laughs) all of the glitter out of the carpet. I, um, I won't use glitter for a sermon illustration in the future. <laughs> yes. But that kind of celebration, that joy that Jesus had, I loved that picture. Mm. Um, but not just the positive emotions, but the emotions that are harder. And I hear people call emotions like anger and sadness negative emotions, but I actually don't like that. I don't think they're negative. I think they're true. And I think they tell us true things about ourselves. Mm. I prefer to call them uncomfortable emotions. Because sadness feels uncomfortable, anger feels uncomfortable, but they're still, like, they're true and they're valuable. I agree. (coughs) I agree. Yeah. Yeah, because I've been been exploring why I overeat. And so, and it's always to cover up some emotion that I'm not Mm. dealing with. Mm -hmm. So I've started to get into the habit of when I'm feeling that urge to actually ask myself, okay, what's the emotion behind this? Mm-hmm. What am I trying to numb? Like that's because that's basically what addictions do. They mm-hmm. they try to numb pain, mm-hmm. some kind of trauma, some kind of emotional wound, some kind of issue that we have that we're not dealing with. We just want to cover up everything with whatever it is, and. Yeah, because we're meant to be. We're meant, we need to feel those right. those things to deal with them. You know, like I, I, I. We need to deal with the, the illness, not the symptoms. Yeah. Not just the symptoms. Like it's good to deal with the symptoms, but it's not. It, if you can, if you can deal with the actual disease itself, it's better to just deal with the disease, even if it's more painful in the short term. Yeah. And that's what I've been doing. That's my journey of the last three years is dealing with the actual the actual stuff and it's more painful it is painful Mm -hmm. you go to some really dark places but you do come out the other side and um but yeah now it's kind of like oh, i'm not going to cover up this pain just by eating chocolate or whatever i'm going to actually ask what it's about and try and wrestle with it and it's so great when you do because you feel so free it's like oh right that's what it was i didn't know i had that issue before but now i do and i've dealt with it you yeah. know, it's I'm like and paint. Like I, I, there's this movie, um, one of my favorite movies. It's um, the Fault in Our Stars, and mm-hmm. there's this quote in it: "Pain demands to be felt." Yes, and I think that's so true. We need to allow ourselves to in a in a safe in a safe environment where we've got support. We need to allow ourselves to feel those emotions and understand them, and that's how you get healing. Right, and that's one of the most powerful things of Jesus' example, in my opinion, is that he just felt his emotions. Hmm. Wildly and expressively Hmm. demonstrated and expressed his emotions, felt his emotions publicly. Um, and, And those uncomfortable emotions like sadness and anger. Jesus experienced sadness and anger publicly. My favorite story in the Gospels is in John 11 when Jesus' friend Lazarus dies. Um, yeah. And um, he's when Jesus goes at the summoning of Lazarus's sisters Mary and Martha, who are two of Jesus' best friends, seems like their house was like his base of ministry. Like he went to Bethany often and was with them. And so he's obviously close with Lazarus. Um, it's, it's possible that Lazarus was actually quite a young man, that he was the younger brother, and so his death was even more tragic. But Mary and Martha call to him, and he comes, but Lazarus has already died. And Jesus doesn't just go into, well, I'm superhero God, and I've come here to miraculously mm. change the situation. He walks into it as a human. He has this hilarious argument with Martha about the theology of the resurrection, which is my absolute favorite conversation in all of the gospels. They're standing there on the road and I imagine them just like yelling at each other because they're grieving, but they don't know what to do with it. And so they sort of direct it at the close friend because that's what we do when we're angry. We, we sometimes like vent onto our closest friend because we know they can take it. And just picture Jesus and Martha standing there on this dirt road, down the road from the house at Bethany near the tomb, just like screaming at each other about the theology of the resurrection. What's the conversation? What do they actually say? Uh, let's look that up. Uh, it's in John 11. Because I'd like to, I think it would be interesting to hear that. You know, and actually now knowing the context of it and understanding that um, 
what it means and you know that they're both grieving they're both hurting and this isn't just like a friendly polite conversation or this isn't him coming along as super jesus coming to save the day this is a this is a real human emotional situation that's happening so right so if we look at, at john 11 um at verse 5 and this i love this verse now jesus loved martha this is literally the only place in the Gospels where it says Jesus loved a specific person. Now, we get the, the disciple he loved, being John. Mm. But to, the phrase, Jesus loved X, Jesus loved Martha, mm. that's so significant. And so many people gloss over that. But Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So he goes to visit them. And um, uh, as he gets close, if we look down at verse 20, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I mean, can you imagine her grief? And, and of course, this is conjecture and putting my imagination into the text, but I just imagine her shouting at him, like, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. Like, like, don't you love us at all? We thought you were our friend and you could have done something and you didn't come and he's dead. Can you just like imagine her like, like collapsing How could you not have done this? What is road? wrong with you? Like, right. not, not like, oh, oh, not like kind of like... Oh, like, oh no, if, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. It's like, why weren't you here? If you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. Like, as in anger, like, you, would, you could have stopped this, like, and you weren't here. Yeah, and then, <sighs> and then you, I just imagine, like, sort of her anger breaking and her, her trust in him sort of taking over again because then she says, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Like mm. She asked him to come in faith, and even in this dark moment, she still has that measure of faith. And Jesus says to her, and, and can you imagine his understanding of who he is at this point in his ministry, so close to his crucifixion, probably truly understanding his identity as the Messiah, as the one who has to suffer, knowing what he has to offer her, but not being able to tell her yet, just sort of responding mm -hmm. in the face of her anger, your brother will rise again. Like, I, I have this hope, but I can't explain it to you, but I, I promise he's going to rise again. And then she says... I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day because Martha is probably a Pharisee and the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. And so she's arguing sort of the, philo the, the philosophical or theological point. Yes, duh, Jesus, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection, but that does me no good today. I don't want to wait for the final resurrection. Like, it's like I want say, my brother now. It's like when somebody says to somebody, if somebody said to me, my mum died, it's like, somebody said, oh, don't worry. She's going to be in heaven. She's in a better place. Mm -hmm. that's, that's how that comes across. Exactly. That's how what Jesus is saying come, would come across. Like, oh, don't worry. He's going to, he's going to, he will rise again. It's like, great. That's what I really wanted to hear right now. Like that I, something I already knew and I don't care about and doesn't do anything about my, my grief. Like, Right. That's her, probably her emotional response to that. But then there's... Yeah, but then Jesus, Jesus says, you know, trying to explain to her, I, I'm the resurrection. I'm not talking about the final resurrection. I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Like, this is what I've come to give you. Do you believe this, Martha? And she finally says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. And the significance of that is only Martha and Peter ever identify Jesus as the Messiah. None of the other disciples get it. But Martha, this woman, gets it. Jesus' best friend, based on like what we see in the text, how much he loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, one of his best friends, she gets it. She gets that he's the Messiah. And she names him as Messiah. Hmm. And she's one of the few who does it. So she gets it. I know you're the one who's come. You're the one we've been waiting for. And so then it goes on and Mary comes out and talks to him. Um, and then in verse 35, John eleven thirty five, 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, just two words, Jesus wept. Hmm. And it's sort of the silent heaving, groaning, weeping over the loss of his friends and what he sees the sisters going through and perhaps even wrestling over his own identity as the resurrection and the life of recognizing maybe, I don't know, like seeing the finality of Lazarus's death and know that that's waiting for him. So in, in a way, perhaps mm. it's grieving for the finality of life of humans in general and the weight of that. And I don't know, but he, he breaks down and he weeps and he takes the time to grieve himself, 
to grieve with his friends, to experience the sadness publicly and openly before he goes. And then he does raise Lazarus from the dead. He does. He does the miracle. But he takes the time to sit with the emotion, to sit with the angry, grieving sisters, and then to sit with his own grief and just feel it and experience it. And so those two lessons there are that Jesus sits with us when we're grieving. When we are grieving, Jesus is present with us by the Holy Spirit and is patient to just receive our anger. You know? Yeah, that that takes me to um, an experience I had with... And I've talked about this on the podcast before. um, And we're going to talk about Gethsemane in a minute, but this is just after... um, his emotional experience and traumatic experience in Gethsemane, it's when Judas comes and um, uh, and Jesus calls him friend. He mm. says, friend, do what you came here to do. And, um, yeah, it, it was... I, I heard that and I realised this was... this was I, I had... I had a, when I, and it's really weird, we just talked about grief... Because I had so much anger stored up at God at losing my mum at 23. I was 23 years old. And all the trauma that I went through as a child. And I had all this anger and bitterness. Like, you, it was, it was, it's really weird. We just talked about mother because that's exactly what I was feeling. Like, you could have stopped this and you didn't do anything. You just weren't there. Like, you could have stopped my parents from breaking up. You could have stopped my mum being ill. You could have stopped my mum becoming an alcoholic, you could have stopped my mum from dying and you didn't do anything. And, like, I had, I carried that around for years and I used to, like, every time something triggered me, like, I would get angry and start shouting at God. I would say, I hate you, God. And this kind of thing. And then I heard that story of Judas that we mentioned and it was like... And I realised it was like, whenever I was doing that, Jesus was the, was there saying like just do what you came here to do like just give all that give me all that that's fine I'll take it I know I know what you're feeling just take it and um and yeah and <laughs> just broke down you know like because then, like, then when I realized that that like I just I just I just give I, that's what I that's what I'd done I'd just given this I'd killed him like in a sense and he just said I'll take it I can take it it's fine I still love you. You're still my friend. Wow. Yeah. That's incredibly powerful. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big part of my testimony, that. Um, and it's... Yeah, so when he's weeping for that, it's like, it. I feel that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's... It's... Yeah. I empathise with it. Now it's different. I, now, I kind of... I feel connect, more connected to Jesus because I understand. Mm-hmm. You know, and actually, after when when talking tonight, I felt I felt so connected to Jesus when hearing about him. He lost a parent. He he lost friends. He you know he went through all this stuff exactly that I've been through. And so it's not so we're more connected, not less connected. Yeah. And you know, I'm sure there's other people who are listening. People who've lost lost people. People yeah. who've been through trauma. You know that the same. Yeah, and. I, one thing that I feel like Jesus has said to me over the past couple of years, I've gone through some real struggles as a ministry leader, um, as a female ministry leader specifically, uh, a lot of rejection or limits placed on me as a woman. Um, mm. and I've felt Jesus be very present in that. And I've felt Jesus call me to keep loving the church as many times as the church as an institution wounds me. Because I feel like Jesus has very gently but very seriously said, I'm not asking you to do anything I haven't done myself. Mm. I've been there. I've felt the betrayal, the rejection, the sting. I've felt it. And I kept loving the people anyway. And I'm Mm. asking you to follow me and to keep loving them even when they don't want you. Mm. Uh, And so that, that... sort of mantra keeps resonating that Jesus just keeps repeating that to me. I'm not asking you to do anything I haven't done before. Mm. I've done it. I've, I've made the example. I've paved the way. 
you can do it too, and I'm here with you in it. And that's so reassuring. Mm. Yeah, see, when we start to talk about the humanity of Jesus, and he becomes, it's weird. We start, to talk, we start to talk about the humanity of Jesus, and he becomes more divine in the process. Absolutely. Oh, I so resonate with that. Yes, he becomes more incredible to me, not mm. less amazing, as I realize. It doesn't reduce humanity. him, it actually no. makes him more godly. Yes. Not less. And you know, um, a really good book for someone who's looking to experience that mm. connection with Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, uh, is called Sacred Questions by Kelly Fabian. K-E-L-L-Y-E. It's an unusual spelling. Kelly Fabian. She's a seminary uh, classmate of mine. Um, we roomed together on a trip in Paul's footsteps uh, in Turkey and Greece last summer. Um, wow. Really love her ministry and her heart. And um, she wrote this 365-day devotional called Sacred Questions. And she does so much work in there. My husband and I are going through the devotional together. Uh, really takes us into the humanity of Jesus and how Jesus relates to how he, we feel. And mm. so that's definitely a book that I can recommend for people who want to dig into that a little deeper. Yeah, I'm definitely going to be taking a look at that, I think. Yeah. Um, so. Oh, we didn't even get to anger yet. We got sort of bogged down in sadness, but Jesus was yeah. angry too. Yeah, I think this is an important. Anger is an important emotion as well, I think. So, um, I mean, yeah, everyone so, knows the story of Jesus' anger, the, the most prominent one. Right. Um, you know, there's, there's a smaller one, actually, that I think is important, too. In Mark 3, Jesus is in the synagogue, and there's a man with a disabled or shriveled hand. Um, and Jesus yes. um, asks the people, what is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Because the idea was that you couldn't do work on the Sabbath in order to keep the law, and so healing would be work. But they remained silent, the people in the synagogue. And he looks at them in anger. This is in Mark 3. He looks at them in anger, and he's deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretches out his hand out, and it was completely restored. And so that's uh, a lesser-known story. But Jesus is angry um, at the way that they kept the religious law over seeing the spirit of the law, which was to love people. Mm. And so Jesus is angry in that moment. Um, and then, of course, the one that people are more familiar with is the cleansing of the temple. And mm. um, that's both in Mark and in Luke. And uh, cheaters and, and people uh, who are con-, con men are setting up shop in the temple and they're, they're offering fraudulent exchange rates and they're cheating the poor faithful people who are coming into the temple to worship and buy their offerings and he throws them out. Um, and he turns uh, some, some rope into a whip and he flips over tables and he shouts at them that uh, he quotes the prophets, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations, but you've turned it into a hideout for crooks or a den of thieves. Um, and he's angry and he's, he's expressively angry. It's not a quiet or demure anger. Mm. Um, and I, I did a sermon on this once and I had set up some crates under a tablecloth and put a bowl of coins on top of them. And as I was speaking and setting up the story, I sort of walked closer and closer to it. And then suddenly I took my hands and I flipped over the whole thing and it sent, you know, crates and coins scattering across the sanctuary and everyone jumped and were shocked. And then I turned to the crowd and I started like screaming at them, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. And just at the top of my lungs, like angry, channeling it all at them. Hmm. And I was looking at my friend Tendai because I kind of needed a focal point, and he just looked absolutely stunned to have you know someone yelling at him in in the church service. And but I worked up so much emotion in myself doing it, I almost threw up. Like I sort of just stirred up all this emotion, all this bile in my stomach. And I I remember like looking at another friend and just sort of locking eyes with her for a moment while I just willed myself to not vomit in front of everyone because I was so emotionally worked up from this uh, this this performance um, managed to sort of whew, calm it back down and, and transition into the rest of the sermon but sort of entering into that emotion mm-hmm. of Jesus but his, his anger was powerful and it was an anger at a distortion and a misuse of religious power and, and I shared in that message um, that's the same anger that we should feel toward people who abuse those in churches. So 
clergy sexual abuse or the cover up of sexual abuse of children or spiritual abuse or mm. um, mistreating church employees or, or people in the church. Like that should make us violently angry. And it does today. That's a cause I care very much about is abuse and abuse cover ups in the church. Um, I've, with a background in journalism, I've done some some research and writing to expose some of those, the cases that have come out in the past few years. And um, we should feel that anger, like the Mm -hmm. anger that Jesus has about the misuse of religion. We should feel today. That's an appropriate, correct and godly emotion to feel anger. So when we see injustice, we should be like Jesus and we should be angry. So uh, I get so frustrated when people tell Christians not to be angry, that they should be nice, that they should be kind, they should be loving, they should be quick to forgive. But I think that anger is a fully appropriate, Jesus-approved emotion. Yeah, I mean, what happens when a parent sees their child getting hurt by somebody? Like, what happens? Right, I mean, the parents I, I get, sort of turn parents, into mama bear. Yeah, exactly. Parents get angry because they love their children. Mm-hmm. That's, that's why they get angry, because they love their children. If they didn't love their children, they wouldn't get angry in that situation. They, wouldn't, they just wouldn't even do anything. But because they love their children, if they're getting beaten up or something, and they see it, they get angry, you know, and they do something. And that's... I always feel like that's, that's the kind of... That's that divine kind of anger. Like, mm-hmm. you're being hurt, and this is not right, and I don't like this, and I will do anything I can to stop it. This is not how things should be, you know. Um, and I do say that it lasts a moment, you know, but it's still there for a moment. And, yeah, so I absolutely agree. So God is emotional. We are created in God's image. We are emotional. Jesus is emotional. Uh, there's no shame in being wildly emotional really to be like jesus is to be expressively emotional Mm. and the gift that jesus gives us in his example is showing that he fully feels his emotions experiences them expresses them and then ultimately he chooses to obey god and that brings us to gethsemane that ultimately jesus chose to obey the plan that he and God the Father had set out, which was for him to liberate humanity from the curse of sin and death by entering into our experience, by dying sacrificially, and by being raised from the dead, therefore breaking the power of sin and death forever. I mean, breaking death and sin from the inside, mm-hmm. from inside the human experience. And so he had to be willing to go through that and to suffer that. Um and so ultimately he was obedient. And so we can follow his example in choosing to feel our emotions and then doing what God wants us to do. Yes, absolutely. I, I completely agree. That because when, when sometimes in life, when you want to take a risk, when you feel like you're being led somewhere and it's a tough decision to make and you're feeling all sorts of emotional stuff about it and you don't, you, you don't really... Not that you don't want to do it, but you're scared. Because that's a normal human human emotion mm-hmm. to feel. Um, because it's a big risk. Say, you know, moving house or moving to another country or or changing jobs or, you know, whatever it is. But you know it's the right thing to do. You know that you have to do it. You know that if you want to say it, God is calling you to do it, you know, to use kind of Christian language. You can still feel afraid to do it and still do it. Right. Um, I knew that it was right to sell my house last year. And I, would, I was scared, but I knew it was the right thing to do. And it's turned out to be absolutely the right thing to do. Um, same when I quit my job the first time. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I suppose I'm, I'm in a place in my spiritual journey where I wouldn't use the same language that I used before I wouldn't use the language of God was calling me to do this God was calling me to do that but I knew it was where I was being led but it doesn't mean that I was it was always easy but I took the decision anyway and I don't regret it and actually the I found actually and this is kind of a different subject but 
the more risks I take, the easier it is to take them. So you want to put that in Christian language, it would be you take the choice to be obedient, no matter how you're feeling. It becomes a little bit easier each time to be obedient to where you're being led. Um, and that's what we see Jesus doing in the garden at the end of his his human life is facing <coughs> the deep suffering that was going to come to him on the cross and saying, not my will, but yours be done. And dealing with the anguish, honestly, really wrestling it out with God before choosing obedience. Yeah, absolutely. And I, there was a, <coughs> the other thing I wanted to talk about with Gethsemane was anxiety and you know, kind of almost depression because the very, there's very, the very physical symptoms that you see um, Jesus sweating blood and sweating blood is has been shown scientifically to be a sign of someone who's going to go major trauma someone who's under a lot of emotional stress and you know and it's, it's, there's un, it's unquestionable that given what he was about to go through and that he'd known this for some time that what he was what he was about to experience, that he was under a lot of emotional and mental stress and may have had some kind of mental illness. Certainly his emotional well-being wasn't... He wasn't in a good place. Right, exactly. And um, and again, like for me, I've, I've had suicidal ideation. I remember when I was about to leave my house and because uh, I didn't have a job and I couldn't get a job and, and like I didn't have any money left and... I didn't know what to do, and I was going to end up living on someone's sofa. I didn't even know who to go to, and I had this moment of like just despair. I fell down off my sofa and started crying. I felt really lonely, really alone, and I I didn't even have enough energy left to pray. I just didn't know what to do, and I started thinking. I didn't make any plans to end my life, but I started thinking about how I would do it and what I would do. Like, oh, maybe I could do this. You know, um, and it's weird now I talk about it that it actually sounds a very similar kind of experience that, you know, that I just almost at the very end of myself, like mm-hmm. that, um, and that's Jesus, Jesus at the very end of himself, literally. Right. Like, you know, he's, he knows what's ahead. He knows what he's got to experience. He knows what that's going to cost him. Um, and not just the physical pain of being crucified, but the, the, the emotional uh, trauma of being abandoned and forgotten and rejected and you know the psychological pain that he's going to go through um being betrayed by somebody that he trusted um you know that if jesus ever ever experienced mental illness it was at that point mm-hmm. i think yeah yeah and any of us going through suffering, despair, hopelessness, or the sense that God is asking us to do something that is just too hard or just too much, I think can look at that example of Jesus. He didn't just suck it up and do the right thing because it was the right thing and put on a happy face. Mm. He didn't fake his way through it. He wrestled. He grappled with it. He struggled he was honest in prayer. He, you know, it's almost like Jesus in those moments in the garden praying to the Father is very similar to Martha talking to Jesus, right? That same kind of grief and struggle and unrelenting emotion just poured out. Jesus felt he could do that in prayer in the same way that Jesus could take it when other people threw those sorts of struggling words at him he could absorb those so i think what we see from jesus's emotional example is that it is okay for us to share our emotions with god Mm. honestly to not hold anything back to tell god when we're sad to tell god when we're grieving to tell god when we're angry or when we're confused or even to share with god our joy and our celebration to share with god our surprise our excitement just to have an honest emotional relationship with God in prayer 
knowing that God knows what that feels like because Jesus experienced all these human emotions. Jesus literally knows what joy feels like in a human body, that thrill of excitement in, in your chest. Or mm. Jesus knows the sadness of like the prickle that you get in your nose when you're trying not to cry. Mm. Jesus knows what all that feels like. So I think we can be honest with God about our emotions, and we can know that God can relate to them. Uh, and that's what I love about looking at Jesus' emotions. Yeah, and... I think also that it just <laughs> means that that you know we can that Jesus is not some abstract idea that he's you know a real human being and that actually the message I guess the message that would be that whatever you're struggling with whether you've got a mental illness whether you're um, whether you whether you've lost someone and you're grieving um, whether you're angry with God or whether you're happy or what, whatever you are going through, wherever you are, you are not alone and it's okay to feel that way. Um, I think that's the message that I get. Um, and I think that's the message that people need to hear because often people feel like God is detached from things and it doesn't relate and doesn't, and does things because he has to and helps us because he has to, because he's God. And actually there's nothing wrong with you if you feel any of those emotions, if you have, or if you have mental illness, or if you um, have anxiety or anything like that. There's nothing deficient about you. Um, you are actually experiencing a very divine kind of exp um, experience. It's a very, it's something that will help you connect with God more. You're more in tune with Jesus than, than you, you're not less, because he experienced those things as well. Absolutely. And, Part of our growth as Christians should be growing in emotional awareness and growing in emotional health. Pete Scazzaro, who does the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship work, a book and podcast, etc., hmm. he says you cannot be spiritually healthy if you're not emotionally healthy. To really grow spiritually, we need to also have an emotional health component. His work, I can highly recommend if you're looking to grow in your emotional awareness, mm. emotional health. Uh, another great tool for growing in emotional health and awareness as a Christian is a book called uh, The Wisdom of Your Heart by Mark Allen Shelsky. Mm. Read it a couple years ago. Absolutely one of the best books I've read in the last couple years. Cannot recommend it highly enough. I actually, it's one of those books I read it and I wished I had written it myself. There's so many of the things mm. that I believe, but Mark did a much better job writing it than I would have. So I'm glad that he did it. Uh, but he is putting out uh, an audiobook in the next few weeks of The Wisdom of Your Heart. I'm very excited to listen to that. But that's a great resource on Jesus and emotions and our understanding of emotions and how we can grow in emotional health and naming our emotions and feeling our emotions and becoming more in tune with this incredible gift that God's given us of emotions. They're gifts from God. They're part of being made in God's image. They tell us true things about what's going on inside of us. And our heart is not to be distrusted, but it's to be listened to because because our emotions tell us mm. true things about what's going on and we really need to listen to their wisdom. Absolutely. I've, I've been learning to listen to my intuition more and I'm making much better choices as a result. Honestly, like because sometimes my intuition will tell me to do things that I wouldn't have thought to do, but when I follow my intuition, actually it ends up leading me to growth every time. Because the things that say, because fear is not a, not a, a good way to make a decision. And um, we often make decisions out of fear. And we need to listen to, I mean, people talk about listening to your bodies. Because they tell you the truth about what's really going on inside. I think that includes listening to your intuition. And it's, it's okay to do that. You know, we are, Jesus was fully human. Um, we're all human and we need, and following Jesus is always for me about becoming more human, about yes. being being fully human yeah. in how we were created to be human. Um, it's not about becoming less human; it's becoming more human and more in tune with ourselves, more connected with ourselves and our true selves, because our true selves are divine. Um, they're who we were made to be in the first place. Um, 
that's definitely been my experience. Yeah, as I have grown as a follower of Jesus and grown in emotional health, I feel like I'm more me than I've ever been. Yeah, I, agree. I 100% agree with that. That's my experience too, yeah. Well, thank you, Becky, for coming back on the show. And especially thank you because I know you've had a really bad cough. And, yeah, uh, hopefully it doesn't come across too badly on the microphone. But yeah, thanks for bearing and, with my uh, sickness. I appreciate that, yeah. And of course, Becky will be back a lot more in the future. Um, yeah, and I'm sure we're doing more episodes from Maastricht as well. Absolutely, <laughs> looking forward to it. Yeah, so uh, thanks, Becky. And thanks everyone for listening. I hope this has been really helpful. It's been really helpful for me. So uh, thanks everyone. Alonzi. Alonzi.